So this last section of chapter 5 is like the peak of the Sermon on the Mount, and the pun is intended. It's the idea that we are at a place where you're, you're getting to that mountaintop, and you can look back and see, this is how I got, I got to here, and we can look forward and say, this is where I go from here. This is the peak. And it's not an accident that that peak ends with this reality of love. Love. I think love is probably the most overused and misunderstood word in the English language, especially as it's applied to the things in Scripture. We, we talk about love, and we, we, we tend to, to, to really mean kind of this sentimentality, how I feel about something. But when the Bible speaks of love, specifically the New Testament speaks of love, it uses love as, as a way that has to be defined by God Himself. Now, Jesus, in talking about love or, or wanting to bring this issue up of love on the Sermon on the Mount, he's not introducing the concept of love to people. Love was definitely something that was taught clearly in the Old Testament. Love was commanded in the Old Testament. Listen to this. Moses wrote in Leviticus chapter 19, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Later on in the same chapter, he says, The stranger who dwells among you, you shall, uh, shall be to you as one born among you. You shall, notice, love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So love for others was commanded in the Old Testament. This was part of the demonstration that God's people were actually in covenant with their God. Love for God was commanded in the Old Testament. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These things were commanded in the Old Testament. But not only that, when Jesus is preaching this in the first century, the religious leaders of his day completely understood the priority of love. They understood that love was recognized as the greatest commandment. Listen to this, Mark chapter 12. So the scribe says to Jesus, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He, and to, and to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor's, uh, one's neighbor as oneself is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So these religious leaders, the, the culture, the religious culture of Jesus' day, recognized that love was supreme, but something unique happens when Jesus comes. Jesus comes on the scene, and when he comes on the scene, love is uniquely and perfectly demonstrated, that we see what love actually looks like. The Scripture says this in 1 John chapter 4. This is the New Testament, of course. It says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word that just means sacrifice that satisfies wrath. That this is who Jesus is. God so loved us that he sends Jesus. So love is not defined by what we do, but by who God is and what he's done. So that when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, when he's wanting to, he's speaking, remember, to his disciples for the benefit of the multitude, when he's doing this, he's defining, okay, this is what it looks like to be my follower. This is what you can expect to be 
developed in you in my kingdom, and it is summed up in love. But not just love in a legal sense, but love in a personal sense, as we know that God Himself is a person of love, the person of love. So what we want to look at today is we really want to look at, sort of in a way, four things that love does. This perfect love, this love that, that came, comes to us in Christ, what does this do? This is what Jesus is going to unpack in this last part of chapter 5. So here's the first thing. You guys ready? Should be in your notes or you have them on your seats, hopefully. The first thing that the perfect love does is it changes our purpose for marriage. Jesus says, verse 31, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24. You might want to write that down. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Check it out and see what it says later. And the, the idea here is there, there was already in that culture this big cultural debate, especially among the Jewish people, of when is it appropriate to divorce, when is it not appropriate to divorce. And so this idea of quoting this verse is they were kind of saying, okay, well Moses said as long as we give our certificate of divorce, it must be okay. So under what circumstances can we give the certificate of divorce? But what they failed to recognize was when Moses wrote that down in Deuteronomy 24, he wasn't trying to promote divorce. He was trying to protect marriage. He was specifically trying to protect women in marriage. And so they were, they were again, misunderstanding the Scriptures. And so Jesus says this in verse 32. He says, but I say to you, remember we talked about this last week, every time it says this phrase, but I say to you, Jesus is using this word for I. It's the Greek word ego. And it's this idea that, in fact, it's only used in the Greek language when you want to be emphatic. So when I read it, but I say to you, that's because that's how Jesus would have said it. But I say to you, And so he's trying to say, listen, these guys have misinterpreted Scripture, but I'm the authority of Scripture. Therefore, I say to you this, listen, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who's divorced, the idea is in the same kind of context, commits adultery. Now, two really important things to to bring out here. One is when Jesus uses this term, Sexual immorality. It's a generic term that means any sex outside the marriage covenant. Really, it would cover all the things that are mentioned in Leviticus chapter 19. And he's, he's answering this idea that what Deuteronomy 24 talks about, because if you read it later on, you'll see it talks about if a, if a woman is found with uncleanness, then uh, uh, he, she can be presented with a certificate of divorce that there were some that interpreted uncleanness as anything she does that doesn't please her husband. And you can imagine the problems that that would cause. But there are others that said, no, the uncleanness would be if there was any kind of sexual morality, any, any evidence of sexual morality, and specifically if she was found that maybe she wasn't a virgin when uh, she got married. It's that kind of a, a thing. And Jesus is saying, listen, you, you, know, you need to understand, this is about any kind of sexual immorality. There's no reason for divorce except by here. Now, it's also important to recognize that he says if anybody who's divorced for, for this reason commits adultery, that adultery, remember, is one of the things that God commands his covenant people are not allowed to be partaken. Obviously, you shall not commit adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments. 
So part of being in covenant God with God was to keep those commandments. Now before I move on, because we're going to look at Matthew 19 in a minute, but before I move on, let me just say this. This is a very difficult thing for us to talk about. It's, it's very emotive. I know that there are some of you here who have been divorced, and, and I don't want you to think that we are trying to condemn you in any way, shape, or form. It is a difficult situation. Uh, one of the most, there's probably a few people that are more unhappy than those who are in an un, unhappy marriage. It's not an easy thing. We're not taking that lightly. This is not about rules. But we do want to deal with what Jesus says here. We do want to take this seriously. He is indeed meant to be our Lord. That's why we're here this morning. So what is it going on? Okay, so the, the, these guys were kind of looking at uh, divorce, and they were thinking, okay, divorce, it's got to be just some sort of legal transaction. How can we do it legally? But divorce is much more than a legal transaction. And marriage, yeah, marriage, it's got to be something about just how, how do we have marriage because it, it works well in our, our culture that, that uh, is based on the covenant with God. So how do we do this marriage? But marriage is much more than a cultural institution. And so Jesus deals with this topic much more in depth in Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to put the verses on the screen so you don't have to turn there. But just listen to this. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, it says, The Pharisees also came to Jesus, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? You maybe get this picture that some of these guys may have heard of what he said in the Sermon on the Mount and going, okay, wait a second, where does this guy stand on this? Now you have to understand that there was much debate in the Jewish culture about divorce. There were two main Jewish rabbis who had two distinct kind of ideas of divorce, as I mentioned before. One thought just for any reason, one thought no, only for sexual immorality. And so there was this debate in the culture. And so these guys were wanting an answer to what they thought was a cultural question. And now doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? Because we live in a day and age now where all these debates about marriage, they've become these cultural issues. What should the culture say about marriage? What should be allowed to be called marriage in culture? And again, these are emotive and difficult and sensitive things to deal with, especially when we deal with them as a cultural issue. Well, it wasn't that different in Jesus' day. And so what you have is a situation here where Jesus is going to deal with us. Look what happens. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus answers these guys, and he said to them, Have you not read, He who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Do you see what Jesus does? When they're wanting to make this a cultural issue, Jesus says this is a creation issue. It goes all the way back to the beginning. What was God's intent? God who invents marriage, not culture. What was God's original intent? He goes all the way back there. And he makes it pretty clear. Here's marriage. One man, one woman, for life, becoming one. Now, what happens, of course, is that they say to Jesus, okay, wait a second, Jesus, in verse 7 of Matthew 19, they said to Jesus, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And here's what Jesus says to them. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now that's a pretty strict standard, isn't it? But do you understand the point that Jesus is making? Jesus is trying to say, listen, do you recognize? He's saying to this audience, you're trying to make this a big cultural issue. And I'm trying to say to you, it's not a cultural issue, it's a heart issue. The reason you have a problem with God's original intent in marriage is not because it's bad, but because you're bad. And I want to say you as in we, the human race. We struggle with a definition of a marriage that's this narrow, that is this traditional, because we're, our hearts are hard. That's the fact. And this is what Jesus is bringing up. And I don't mean that to be insensitive. I don't mean that to be... Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not ignorant of how difficult these things can be in a variety of cultural and personal ways. But I'm trying to say, listen, this is what Jesus is wanting to make clear. Stop making these things cultural issues and where's your heart? Examine your own heart on this issue. But it goes further because look what happens, Matthew 19. Then it says, his disciples said to him, okay, now his disciples are hearing this. They're they're hearing what Jesus just said to these religious leaders. So his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now these are the disciples, right? You're thinking these are the guys that Jesus has called to follow him. He's trained them. They're going to just say, yes, Jesus, preach, go for it. And they're all, dude, that's harsh. I'm not going to get, why should be married then? They're kind of normal First century sexism is showing itself and they're just thinking, if a woman's not going to just do what I want her to do and I can't just chuck her aside if there's not a better model, then what's the point of getting married? That's what these Jesus followers are initially thinking. Listen, but Jesus said to them, all can accept the saying, but only those to whom it's been given. Here's the saying, listen. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of, uh, of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. What's a eunuch? If you don't know, I won't get too graphic, but just let me say this. A a eunuch, in this context anyway, is basically referring to, in a general sense, somebody who doesn't participate in sexual activity. That's what a eunuch is. That's the idea. Someone who chooses to be a celibate or is born a celibate, who practices celibacy their whole life. Now, this is important because... The reason Jesus is saying this, especially the fact that he says some have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, it doesn't mean a physical operation that they have, it just means they've chosen to be celibate. That's what he's getting at. But the reason he brings this up is because he's making it clear, okay, marriage is not the ultimate relationship. It's not. And I say that, as you guys know, as a very happily married man. I brag about my wife all the time. 25 years, very happy. But it's not the ultimate. Marriage is not the ultimate relationship. Being a parent is not the ultimate relationship. Being a child is not the ultimate relationship. And this is the point Jesus is getting at. He's saying, listen, part of the problem is you're thinking of marriage, and of course in that context, they're thinking of marriage as how it doesn't please the man. But you're thinking of marriage as this is the ultimate. I have someone who's completely and utterly committed to me. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're not getting it. You need to accept that there's something greater than this. Therefore, if you can be single, be single. Paul echoes this whole sentiment in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can look that up and read it yourself. But you know what else? The apostles of Jesus, those that Jesus sent out, 
echoed these things as well. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes this, For the reason, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2. But notice what he says. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, let me be clear in case you don't understand this. When the New Testament uses this word mystery, it doesn't mean something that we can't know. It means something that we didn't know until it was revealed. Do you guys follow me on that? And so when Paul says this is a great mystery, he's saying this is something that we didn't know until Jesus came. What's the mystery? Christ, God's chosen king, is going to be related to his people in a way that marriage is the best analogy for. In other words, this is what they're trying to make the point, okay? Here's, here's the, how the apostles are clear. Marriage points to the ultimate relationship. It's not the ultimate relationship. It points to the ultimate relationship. That's the teaching of the New Testament. So going back to Matthew chapter 5, listen, when Jesus gives this, this teaching, when he says, listen, you guys have been getting this whole thing wrong, you're interpreting what Moses said wrong, what you need to understand is those who choose to see me as God's chosen king, those who understand that they are to follow me, this is what they need to know. It changes their purpose for marriage. For you guys who are already married, let me, let me, let me ask you something. What is the purpose of your marriage? Is the purpose of your marriage to simply try to have companionship? That's a great thing. Is it to have sexual release? Hey, that's a great thing. God invented sex. It's a great thing. Is it to procreate? That's a great thing if God blesses you with children. Is it to be more financially stable? That's, not, that's also not a bad thing. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. But none of those things are God's purpose for a New Testament, Jesus-centered marriage. If we're going to be Jesus followers, the purpose of our marriage needs to be how we treat each other is to point back to Jesus. It's to say this is how great our God is, that he would commit to us in the way he's called us to commit to each other, and even more so because he never fails. He's always faithful. I'll tell you what. The reason Sarah and I have such a great marriage is not because we're so compatible or, you know, I'm so incredibly good-looking. Don't laugh. <laughs> we have a great marriage because we know our marriage is not what our life is about. Our life is about Jesus, or at least we want it to be. At least we're moving that direction. And the more we say, Lord, we want to know you, we want to find you, we want to point back to you, the better, the better our marriage gets because we don't look to each other for the ultimate. We know we're only going to find that in Jesus. Because the love we have for each other, as strong as it is, is not a perfect love. But the love that the Lord has for us is a perfect love. So this is what happens. Perfect love, it, it changes our purpose in marriage. Let's go on to verse 33 of Matthew 5. Jesus brings up another issue, the issue of taking oaths. He says, again, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths uh, to the Lord. Now, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 23, but if you were to read Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 and 22, you'd see that what Scripture's actually teaching there, it's encouraging us to keep vows, not to make vows. 
And the religious uh, leaders of Jesus' day would really encourage vows. They thought, hey, taking vows is a really important thing. In fact, I think we have it on the screen, right? Deuteronomy 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to, to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. So what's the, what's the command there? Look, if you're going to make a vow, you better keep it. But you know, you don't have to make a vow. So that, that's really what the Scripture was teaching there to God's covenant people in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, okay, you've heard this, and you've heard this used to say, look, make sure you make vows to God, or make sure that you're vowing to do what you need to do. But Jesus says in verse, uh, verse 34, but I say to you, do not swear at all, and we'll come back to what he means by that, but he says, listen, neither swear by heaven, for it's God's throne, neither swear by earth, for it's God's footstool, or swear by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Now these are the kinds of oaths that religious leaders were famous to make. And they would make these oaths, what they swore by kind of indicated how serious they were about keeping their word. What these guys kind of would do is they would have this kind of level of, you know, I swear by the temple. I swear by the gold of the temple. I swear by the sacrifice made on the altar of the temple. And, And depending on what they were swearing by, it would give the person an indication of how serious they were about keeping their word. That's what they would do. That's funny because I was, I was just talking to someone today and they asked me a question. I said, well, to be honest with you, <laughs> which kind of sounds like I'm usually not honest with you, but now I'm going to be. <laughs> but the point is, th- they, were doing what, what, uh, they were doing what I would call, um, situa- they, were, they were trying to, to keep situational integrity. We have integrity when it's really important, but if it's not so important, don't need so much integrity. If it's really not important, don't need any integrity at all. Situational integrity, I might call it. Jesus is rejecting that. He's saying, absolutely not. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to see me as I am, God's chosen king, then that has to be rejected. In fact, he says in verse 36, nor shall you swear by your head because you can't make one hair white or black. Notice, this is really important because by swearing on their own head, it's kind of like I swear on my life sort of thing. They're kind of acting like they can control when they live or die. They can control their, their surroundings. Can we do that, really? No. We're not in control, are we? So when you swear like that, you're basically acting like, I can control circumstances. This is one of the reasons why, listen, when people give their word to us and they break that word, we should show mercy because sometimes they can't control their circumstances. But it's also why, listen, we as Jesus followers should be those who are known for keeping our word. We make a commitment, we stick to it. I have to say, man, I've failed really miserably on this because I tend to want to say yes to everything. I want to please people, I want to serve people, I want to make them happy. Hey, can you, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll make it happen, it'll happen. But the truth is, I, I don't know if I can make it happen. I, my, I'm so busy sometimes I can't make something happen. I, I feel so bad when someone says, can we get together? I go, yeah, we'll get together soon. When the truth is, we'll probably get together in about six weeks when my calendar is finally free. I'm just really bad about thinking I can control my circumstances. Therefore, I can make promises that truth is I can't really keep. However, God does want me to make promises I can keep. He does want me to do what I say, to keep my word. Why? 
Why is it so important to Jesus that we do what we say? This is why. Listen. Because like Jesus, people trust us when we do what we say. See, here's the hope that we have in Christ. This is the hope that we want to demonstrate to people. Our hope is based on the fact that Jesus can and will keep his word. Do you realize that? If you have hope in Christ, if you have hope in a resurrection, that you're, there is life after you die, if you have hope that you will see God face to face, if you have hope that all your sins are forgiven, that hope can only be based upon the fact that Jesus can do what he says and he will do what he says. Therefore, as his followers, as those who want to not just communicate the gospel, but demonstrate the gospel, we need to be those who keep our word. It has to be there. Now again, at the, I don't want to offend anybody or, or act like I'm, I don't appreciate what you do, but we have something like 65 people in our church, which is a big percentage, who have committed to serve in some capacity. Filled out applications, put themselves on a rota, they've committed to do that. And we appreciate every single one of them. But can you see why we sometimes say, man, you really need to keep your commitments? It's not just about because it makes it easier for us, but it's about you being a Jesus follower. I hope that's not a, I don't mean that to be, sound like I'm not appreciative of your service or how hard it is to sacrifice that time. But can you see where we're coming from on this? It's not just a, logistical issue. It's a discipleship issue. It's an issue of we've got to keep our word. It demonstrates the gospel. The psalmist says this. He asks the question in Psalm 15, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? God, who gets to enjoy you? And then he answers his own question. He who honors those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurts and does not change. You know what that means? You make a commitment, and even if it hurts, you keep the commitment. It's not easy, is it? We fall short of this, don't we? But can you see why Jesus would call us to this? Can you see why his kingdom is, is, is meant to be full of people who do this? So that people would see him. This is what happens, guys. When, when we experience God's perfect love it aligns our words and our actions. It makes us people who can keep our word. Now, verse 38, Jesus goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this is quoted throughout the first five books of the, or, uh, four of the five books of the Old Testament. So of, of the law, the Old Testament law. Several places this phrase is used, Exodus, Deuteronomy, other places. And this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is not a demand to pluck out someone's eye because they plucked out yours or to knock out someone's tooth because they knocked out yours. It is a law, the, called the law of retaliation. It's to limit retaliation. And that's really important to understand. Because of our natural tendency and in the cultures that the Scripture has written, this, this is what the case was and it's still uh, the way our hearts work today. If someone blackens my eye, I'm going to blacken both of theirs. Hey, you bump into my car, I'm going to run into, I'm going to slam into yours. This is what we do. We don't say, 
hey, I want to bring equal justice here, everything. No, no, no. I'm going to get better on you. And obviously we all can see how that would escalate and escalate and escalate. So God says no. There's a limit to retaliation. The punishment needs to fit the crime, not to satisfy your sense of revenge. Do you understand? But Jesus takes that principle that retaliation is to be limited and he takes it even further. Listen. He says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. He says, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Notice he says specifically the right cheek. You know why that is? Because in that day when someone was going to insult somebody else, they would take their right hand and go slap across the right cheek of the other person. You kind of see this in these old movies, you know? The gentleman takes off his, his, his glove. <laughs> and it was, it was meant to be like, I'm against you, sir. You're an offense to me. I'm proving that. So this is not a, a, a picture. Jesus has purposely not drawn a picture. His audience would not have seen this as a picture of someone's jumping on you back and beating you down. This is not saying don't ever defend yourself. It is saying when there's an insult, take it. Take it. Why? Listen to this. This is what Peter says, one of Jesus' apostles, who are, of course, who are hearing this. Jesus says, or Peter says about Jesus, Jesus did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, that we might be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Now listen. What's happening here is Jesus is saying, listen, when this, my perfect love begins to invade your heart, when you understand and begin to be changed by my perfect love, here's what it does. It teaches you to give to the undeserving. Why? Because of what Jesus does. He calls us as his followers to be willing to be insulted because guess what? He expects we're going to be insulted. I, I think about how many insults have been thrown at me since I've become a Christian? The first insults were just the kind of laughter like, are you nuts? What are you doing with all this Jesus stuff? But then the insults were, you know, it's not going to last. It's just a stupid phase. You'll grow out of it. And then the insults got heavier. And in different circumstances, they get more personal, more pointed. And, and i got to say, you know, I wish I could say, Every insult, uh, there wasn't an insult that I retaliated on, but sometimes I did. Because there's something about that says, why are you doing this? You know, you don't have a right to do this to me, but why did Jesus allow himself to be insulted? Peter tells us right here. Because he was dying for the very people who were insulting him. He was paying for their sins. He wanted them to be reconciled. So we need to be willing to be insulted. That's part of giving to the undeserving. But also, listen, we need to be willing to risk loss. He says, notice, where is it? Uh, in verse 40, he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, the Old Testament law said, if you're, you, know, you, you owe someone money and they want to sue you to get that money back, they can take your tunic, but their cloak, they have to return to you at the end of the day because your cloak was also kind of the blanket you slept with. So it kept you warm at night. So out of you know, compassion for you, they had to give it back. Jesus is saying, don't even ask it back. 
Give it to him as well. In other words, listen, he's saying, if you're going to follow me, part of giving to the undeserving is being willing to risk loss. And this is exactly, listen, what Paul has to deal with with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to this. Paul writes, even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourself be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. Paul is saying to you guys, saying to the Corinthian church, this is ridiculous. Jesus' followers should not be suing each other. This should not be happening. That's what he's saying. We should be willing to risk the loss, take the loss. Look at verse 41. I'm sorry, verse... uh, Yeah, verse 41. He says, And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with them too. You guys probably know this, right? That in that day, because the the Romans occupied uh, Israel, uh, Israel was under their their rule, that the the Roman law said that they could uh, compel someone to serve them by carrying their equipment for one mile, a thousand steps. And Jesus said, okay, when that happens, here's what I want you to do. Go 2,000 steps. Why? Because when you do that, it's, more, it's not so much you being a slave to them, but you wanting to serve them to show them me. In other words, be willing to serve beyond requirements. Listen to this. This is, especially in the New Living Translation I'm going to read out of here, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 and 2. Hard verses to hear in our modern age. Look what it says. All slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and His teaching. If masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. Now, some of you may have had non-believers bring this issue up to you. How can you believe the Bible when it, it, it encourages, they would say, slavery? That's a valid question, isn't it? It's a really valid question. But you have to understand what's happening here. Paul is not saying slavery is a good thing. First of all, this is probably indentured servitude, which is a little bit different than slavery. They're not forcing people outside their will to be slaves. It's people paying off their debts or people who can't find work, that sort of a thing. But the point is as well, what Paul writes, say, in the little book of Philemon, Philemon, sorry, forgot we're in England, uh, in that little book is basically, it, it is the seeds that, undid the slave trade. It's the seeds of the gospel that undid the slave trade. That's what Wilberforce grabbed onto. The fact is that, that in, uh, in the gospel, we have the affirmation that man is made in the image of God, has inherent value, that men are equal, that men should not be treated as chattel, and therefore the gospel undid the slave trade. Didn't eradicate it. It still happens because men are evil, but no Christian would say it's right. But what Paul's writing to is saying, listen, he's saying, don't you understand, as a Jesus follower, you're a slave to him. And as a slave to him, you should be willing to serve beyond what's required. Why? Because Jesus did. Jesus did. It represents the gospel. It points people back to the gospel. But not only this, not only should we be willing to serve beyond requirements, we should also be willing to be generous. Look what he says in verse 42. He says, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. 
Now again, the Jews had uh, laws. God had given them laws that were to keep those who loaned from exploiting those who borrowed. We could use some of those today, couldn't we? And Jesus is saying, let's take this a bit further. This is about giving to the undeserving. So here's the deal. I want you to be generous to people who are undeserving. Notice he says, this is what Scripture says again. Paul backs this up, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he can make you rich. Do you know why we do the soup run? Do you know we participate in that as a church? And by the way, we need help with that. We could use some more volunteers for the soup run, so talk to Adam or... um, Who else is running that now? Oh yeah, David Melzer. Or David about that. But do you know why we do that? We don't do that because we look at homeless people and go, oh, they're just poor victims of culture or society. We We don't think that. We don't know their story anyway, half the time. We do that because whether they deserve it or not, God wants us to show them grace and generosity. That's why we do that. This is what perfect love does. When we recognize that God's perfect love was shed abroad on our hearts, was given to us through Jesus and his sacrifice, that that shows the extent of God's generosity towards us. We think, Lord, I should be generous to others, whether they deserve it or not. This is what he calls us to. Now, remember, we're talking about Four things that a perfect love does. This is, this is the love that's shown in Christ, that's brought with Christ. It does these things, right? It, it changes our purpose for marriage. It, all, it, it aligns our actions and our words. It gives to the undeserving. And here's the last thing, but this really this last thing is what all the other things are predicated upon. The last thing is it produces a supernatural change. We're not just talking about a greater morality. The standard that Jesus sets here for us is something that only God can produce. Look what he says, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that was a complete and other twisting of what the scripture says. The religious leaders had twisted that idea of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. Remember those verses we read earlier in Leviticus, especially the one about the stranger? It was easier for them culturally, especially being occupied by the Romans, to go, no, we can hate our enemies, it's okay. They're bad. They oppress us. We can hate them. But that's not what the Scripture said. So they twisted. Jesus says, look, they twisted the Scripture, and he says to them, but I say to you, listen, love your enemies. Love your enemies. He says, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Listen, do you know what you have to have if you're going to love your enemies? You have to have enemies. Our tendency is to, let's avoid anybody that would threaten our way of life, that would threaten our comforts. It would be our enemy. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't just absorb any abuse that these people might bring on you, but pursue their 
good. That's the standard that Jesus sets. Pursue their good. Think about this, guys. How radical is this? How radical is it for us not just to go, okay, I'll take it. So I, I follow Jesus. I'll take the suffering. He took the suffering. No, he didn't just take the suffering. It wasn't just passive resistance. It was purposeful blessing. It was going to do something to benefit those that were enemies. Why? Why did Jesus do it for us? Because he wants to make us his enemies into his friends. He wants to adopt us into his family. That's why. Can you see why when we emphasize politics and cultural problems over just following Jesus, things become a mess? Look, I'm not telling you how to vote or what your political convictions need to be because honestly, if you knew what mine are, you probably wouldn't stand here today. But the point is this, that is not what we're called to emphasize. We're called to follow Jesus and Jesus loved his enemies. He loved us as enemies. He blessed us when we cursed him. He did good to us when we hated him. We wanted nothing to do with him. He prayed for us even though we spitefully used and rejected him. He calls us to the same. Listen, he goes on to say in verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Notice what he says. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Now, I know you guys know this, right? That tax collectors were seen as the the lowest end, they were the, they were the scum feeders of, of the Jewish culture because tax collectors were usually Jewish people who were collecting taxes for Roman rulers. And they would do that often through extortion because they made their money based on that. Okay, if I need, a, if I need 10 pounds for the Roman government, I'm going to collect 12 so I can put two in my pocket. So they were considered traitors and selfish and greedy. And he goes, listen, even those guys who you despise, those guys love each other. They're good family. They love their families. They love their friends. So listen, when you go, oh man, I really want to be a part of this church or I really like that church because they really kind of, you know, they're really, there's a lot of cool people there. People like me. And we get on well together. Same stage of life. Yeah, same interests. Yeah. We want to be in that church. That's what we want to be identified with. Jesus goes, well, don't even tax collectors do the same? Hey, man, you can go to a Rotary Club and get that. You can join the local football club and get that. But Jesus is calling us to be a community, listen, of people who love people that are different from us. In other words, he says this can't just be about natural affection. Natural affection being kind of a family connection that we have with people that are like us or people that are of the same DNA or people that we have brought into our families. It can't not just be that. As great as that is, 
It's got to be more. It's got to be a supernatural love. That's what he calls us to. It's got to be that I'm going to pursue the good of people who think differently than me, who act differently than me, who look differently than me, who have different backgrounds, who have different aspirations. I'm going to love those people because that's what Jesus did for me. And it starts here with us as the church. And we have a great advantage over a lot of churches in Norwich, guys, because we are crazy diverse. Socially, economically, ethnically, even spiritually. We, the, the, the difference of back, Christian backgrounds here is intense. Talk about theological juggling, man. That's why we teach the Bible verse by verse so nobody can accuse me of just giving me my doctrine. I'm trying to stick to what God says. But that diversity gives us an opportunity to demonstrate this kind of supernatural love. God, you have to give me your heart for these people, your commitment for these people. Because naturally, I don't have it. In fact, listen, this is not about trying harder because here's the deal. When we try to work by our natural self, all that comes out is sin. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. Paul says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are really clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasure, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of wrath. I had some of that this morning. Selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and sins like these. Now, let's be honest. Every single one of us can identify with at least one of those, can't we? Even as those who profess to be Jesus followers. <laughs> at least. And he says, Paul says, so that we're, we're sober about this. He says, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God's not going to be ours if we, if that's our lifestyle, that's our practice. And that practice comes, listen, not just because we're pursuing debauchery. That practice happens because we're trying to live life on our own strength, by our own terms. That's when it happens. And Jesus, listen, he's calling us to something else. He wants to produce in us something else, a supernatural change so that we're not about us anymore. We're about him. And he's about others. That's why he says, listen, in verse 48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's amazing how many Bible commentators said, well, this is referring to maturity. It's just, it's, don't think perfection as in no error. It's just about maturity. Really? Jesus, the Father is just maturing? That's some dodgy theology right there. Now the Father is perfect. And God is calling us to a perfection. He's calling us, listen, to be identifiable, according to verse 45, as sons of your Father in heaven. Now, ladies, if you feel awkward about being called the Son, I got to be called a bride, so it evens out. <laughs> We're called to a perfection, and God, listen, Jesus holds the standard up this high. You know why? So that we go, Lord, I can't do it. But you can, you will. This is our hope. This is what He promises us. This is the kingdom. 
You see, guys, the kingdom is not about food and drink. The kingdom is about righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. It's about what God the Spirit produces in our lives. That's what it's about. It's about Him, and the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. That demonstrates itself in all those other things. God is going to produce that in us. Listen, God is going to enable us by His Spirit because of the work of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit takes the works of Christ, the merits of Christ, that what Christ earned for us, the Holy Spirit takes that and He applies it to our life. So that we have a, not just a position of righteousness before God, but he begins to change us, produce a supernatural change so that we have a practice. It's right for God. It's right with God and right with others. So that, listen, we can say, God, I love you. Help me love you more by the power of your spirit, by the merits of Christ. Lord, I love these people, but help me love them more by the merits of Christ by the power of God's Spirit. We can do that. That's the gospel. If you're here today and you don't yet know this Jesus that we're talking about, the Jesus who said these words, if you don't know him, I know you know about him, if you didn't know about him, you wouldn't be here. I mean, even if you've never stepped foot in church before today, you came to a Christian church because somehow you thought, truth, Jesus, go together. God, Jesus, goes together. You thought that. So even if you're in that place where you've never heard any of this stuff before, here's what I want you to understand. This Jesus who wrote these things, who said these things, the Jesus who said these things lived these things, and he lived these things so perfectly that when he was on trial for his life, no one could accuse him of any wrong. He, he demonstrated that perfect love even when he's actually being crucified, nailed through his wrist, nails through his feet, he's praying and he's on the, on the cross and you know what he says, first words were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And this Jesus who predicted his death, predicted his own resurrection, does come back to life three days later, shows himself to all his disciples and also 500 people at the same time to prove historically, emphatically, that it's reasonable for us to trust him. This Jesus can produce in you this love. Is not this the world we all want? Don't, don't we all want this kind of love? Don't we want to get to that mountaintop and look back and go, Lord, you've provided this? And look forward and say, this is how it's going to be lived out? That mountaintop, listen, is called Calvary. It's where Christ was crucified. It's where his death provides ours so that his resurrected life can provide ours. And if you don't know him, if you've not received him, if you've not acknowledged him as the Lord and Savior that he is, today is the day. Don't put it off. You go, yeah, but I'm so messed up. I fall so short of that. That's the point. That's why today needs to be the day. We all fall short of that glory of God. But God wants to change us from the inside out. Today's the day. 